If you are new and visiting us here this morning, uh, we are in the midst of a series on the book of Mark. So if you do have your Bibles uh, with you, if you could open up to Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Now last week, uh, Dave did, I thought, an excellent message, fantastic message, looking at the baptism of Jesus. And we were so blessed to have baptisms in this church and be hearing more testimonies of God's work in people's life. And we are so blessed to have Dave as our pastor, aren't we? You know, I just encourage you as a church to be praying for Dave. Uh, he's travelling over to the US at the moment uh, to, uh, to serve on the executive committee of Sovereign Grace and leaving behind Emma with uh, five kids. Uh, so that's no easy task, as you know, all you parents would understand. So let's be praying for those guys in particular at this time. Well, last week we are looking at the baptism of Jesus. This week we're looking at his temptation. And uh, honestly, it's been pretty sobering for me to read this week. And I've been mind, reminded, I guess, again this week of my personal need for grace. So why don't we read... Uh, Mark chapter 1 from 9 to 13. We're actually only going to be looking at two verses this morning, 12 and 13, but let's read the whole passage in context. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come before your word with a real need for grace. The grace of hearing from you again. The grace of seeing your son a little bit more clearly again. And I pray you would help me this morning to preach your word faithfully. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes you read a story that really just shakes you to the bone. And so it was for me just a few weeks ago reading in the Washington Post a, a, a story entitled Billy Graham's grandson steps down from Florida megachurch after admitting an affair. Well, the article goes like follows. Billy Graham's grandson, Talian Chavijan, has resigned from his pulpit at Coral Ridge Presbyterian, a high-profile church in South Florida, after he admitting he had an affair. He released the following statement to the Washington Post. I resigned from my position at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church today due to ongoing marital issues. 
As many of you know, I returned from a trip a few months back and discovered my wife was having an affair. Heartbroken and devastated, I informed our church leadership and requested a sabbatical to focus exclusively on my marriage and family. As her affair continued, we separated. Sadly and embarrassingly, I subsequently sought comfort in a friend and developed an inappropriate relationship myself. Last week, I was approached by our church leaders and they asked me about my own affair. I admitted to it and it was decided that the best course of action would be for me to resign. Both my wife and I are heartbroken over our actions and we ask you to pray for us and our family that God would give us the grace we need to weather this heart-wrenching storm. We are amazingly grateful for the team of men and women who are committed to walking this difficult path with us. Please pray for the healing of deep wounds and we kindly ask that you respect our privacy. Chavijan, 42, had been married to his wife Kim since 1994 and they have three children. Something that just shakes you to the core. You know, just picturing the damage to that church and to, to that family, the suffering and grief from sin. You know, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.8 that the devil prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour, looking for someone to consume. And the famous theologian John Owen says that he has three avenues through which he can tempt us. He tempts us directly. He tempts us through the world and the values of the world that we live in. And he tempts us through our own hearts and the desires of our own hearts. And for all of us, temptation is something that we constantly live with. You know, I was thinking about this or even my experience just this week. You know, I'm at work uh, at St. Vincent's in the city and it comes to the end of the day on a Friday and you look at your list and you're running short of time and you know you finish at 4.30, you want to be out the door right on 4.30. You don't want to stay behind and then you see the dreaded patient on level nine who is the most picky and fussy and anxious patient that you have on your list and you've been putting him off and off and off right to the end and you think, and as you look at your list, it it might be so easy just to go, oh, well, I'll pretend that he didn't want to be seen by me today. Cut a corner, finish on time. Temptation. I don't know if you're familiar with that temptation to cut corners, to, to, to be slack on the job, or selfishness. I mean, coming home then from a busy day at work uh, to, to, to just want to just sit in front of the television and not be bothered. Just wanting to enjoy myself and not contributing anything, being disinterested in serving my wife. Temptation. It's something that we all struggle with. And I wonder how you come here today when it comes to temptation. Maybe you're aware of repeat failings in your life. Failings when it comes to leading at home. Failings when it comes to being patient and kind. Failings when it comes to logging on to sites that you know you shouldn't log on to. Maybe you come here this morning 
entangled in temptation. You, you, you're here this morning and you're entertaining thoughts about something that, that you know you shouldn't be doing. And the thoughts are beginning to move towards minimizing the consequences of that action. It won't be that bad if I do it. It's not really that serious. I mean, it's no big deal, right? Or maybe you're coming from the reverse perspective. You're feeling strong and you think temptation, ha, too easy. I'm strong. The Lord has me firm. I think for us this morning, regardless of how we come, this morning we have a message of grace. A message that's both comforting and sobering at the same time and contained in two small verses this morning. Two small verses loaded with grace. I've uh, stolen the title for this morning's message from Jeff Perswell because I couldn't think of anything better to call it. Tempted for us. And we'll be looking at really three implications of Jesus' temptation for us. Three implications, but one real hope for me. And that is that we together would see that Jesus was tempted for us so that we might have hope amidst our failures. Jesus was tempted for us that we might have hope amidst our failures. Well, the first implication of Jesus' temptation this morning is that he has defeated the devil. He has defeated the devil. Just by way of context, as we saw already, Jesus has commenced his ministry and we have this miraculous scene of the heavens being torn completely open, ripped open, and the Spirit of God descending from above onto Jesus. And it's one of the most powerful scenes in all of Scripture, one of the most spectacular moments in Scripture. And the voice of the Father as the Spirit descends comes from the heavens and says, This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. It's a a quote of Psalm 2 verse 7. A psalm about the coming king who will rule and his enemies will be put under his feet. But the voice doesn't just say, this is my beloved son. He says, with you I am well pleased. With you I am well pleased which is a quote from Isaiah 42.7, talking about the suffering servant of the Lord. So we have already, right at the start of Jesus' ministry, a clear identification of who he is. He is the promised king, and he is the suffering servant all in one. This is the Messiah. And he's baptized He comes to be baptized and John doesn't want a bar of it, but Jesus says, no, this must happen. And and John baptizes him and he baptizes him and Jesus humbles himself to be baptized because he's come to identify with us. Isn't that a powerful message? That our Savior King, God himself, comes to us to identify with us. And what would we normally expect to happen next? Like, what would we expect to happen? You know, if I was Jesus, what I think I would do at this point is I would mount my trusty steed and I would ride on into Jerusalem and I'd be laying the smack down on the Pharisees. You know, king with power. You know, putting people in their place. But this is the suffering servant king. This is not our Jesus Christ. 
Why don't you read with me again those two verses, 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Immediately. Jesus is baptized and then immediately the Holy Spirit casts him out. Jesus feels a strong leading of the Spirit moving him out into the wilderness. God the Father has purposed that Jesus would go straight from his baptism into the wilderness. I think when we think about wilderness, we think kind of like bushwalking, right? We think, you know, blue mountains and, you know, the rainforest and nicey, nicey, walkie, walkie, you know, like looking at the birds and things. And, but this is not the picture that we should be envisaging as we read this passage. You know, Jesus in first century Palestine is living in a desert land. He is living in a barren wilderness. It is a barren desert exposed to extremes of temperature. But more than that, it was dangerous. It was a dangerous place. There were bandits and there were wild animals. You know, just thinking about this this week, it reminded me of a series that uh, Charlotte and I had been watching uh, recently called On the Trail of Genghis Khan. And on this uh, documentary uh, series, On the Trail of Genghis Khan, there's a foolish Australian guy who basically travels the journey that Genghis Khan took uh, from Mongolia all the way through to Bulgaria in Europe on the back of a horse. And he goes through Afghanistan and Kazakhstan and this guy, he doesn't have a crew with him, it's just him and a handicam through the whole way. And he gets robbed and threatened. Uh, He gets exposed to wild animals. And in fact, one of the most haunting uh, scenes is as this guy is camping in the wilderness in Kazakhstan in the freezing cold with just him and two horses in his tent and the packs of wolves that start circling his campsite and just the sickening, blood-curdling howls in the middle of the night as these animals draw nearer and nearer and nearer, and as the horses begin to panic and scared and rearing up and trying to bolt, it's just this terrifying scene. This guy completely at, alone at the mercy of the wild animals. And that is the kind of picture that we should have in our minds as we think of Jesus in the wilderness. He is alone. He is by physical means unprotected and exposed. This is a fearsome picture. And for this reason, in Hebrew thinking, the wilderness was a cursed place. The wilderness was associated with being the home of the devil. And Jesus, we learn from the other Gospels, is fasting. He is fasting for 40 days, and he is hungry. He is, quite literally, starving. And the devil is tempting him. Well, why is this here? Why has Mark placed this here? It seems so random in one sense. Well, I think Mark has a purpose in placing this passage here. Mark wants us to see right from the start what Jesus' ministry is all about. He wants us to see the very focus of Jesus' ministry 
And that is a great cosmic battle. Jesus has come to fight a great cosmic battle. You see, the disciples will later be blinded by their culture. They're expecting Jesus to come and kick Roman backside. That's what they're expecting. They're expecting him to come in, kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and re-establish God's physical kingdom. But Jesus has come for a much bigger battle. Jesus has come for this cosmic showdown. This is the Son of God versus Satan. You see, Satan in Hebrew literally means the adversary, the enemy. He is a created being that opposes the will of God. And Satan is the real target of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has repeated battles with Satan. Jesus, in fact, his first miracle is to cast out an unclean spirit in the book of Mark. We read over the page in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 21. It says, And Jesus went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who has authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you come to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. His very first miracle in the book of Mark is to cast out an unclean spirit. This is what we will see Jesus repeatedly doing. In chapter 3, Jesus is confronted with the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews who are saying to him, you know, you're doing this by the power of Satan. You're casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus tells this, this story where basically he says, look, a house can, cannot be divided against itself. A house can't be split against itself. I can't cast out demons by the power of Satan. I can only, therefore, cast out demons by the power of God. And what Jesus is implicitly saying is, if I'm working for God, who are you working for opposing me? The answer is Satan. The leaders of the Jews are seen to be, in the book of Mark, aligned with Satan. Again, in chapter 4, the parable of the sower. The first thing the sower does, he casts the seed and some of it falls on the, uh, on the road, on the footpath. The seed being God's word as it comes out, falling on the footpath. What happens? The, the devil, Satan, comes immediately down like a bird and snatches it away. There is this cosmic warfare. In chapter 5, uh, what happens is Jesus heals a man possessed by a legion of demons. 6,000 demons and he casts them out into the lowest of the low unclean animals into pigs this great cosmic battle the son of god versus the devil versus satan again in chapter 8 at the turning point of mark's gospel peter rebukes jesus for going to the cross saying that he's going to die and lay down his life and what does jesus say to him he says get behind me satan There is a cosmic battle going on in Mark's Gospel. A cosmic battle. And the cosmic battle is between the Son of God, God himself, God the Son, and Satan. Well, you might read Mark and think that the battle is Jesus versus the leaders, or Jesus versus Romans, or Jesus versus culture, but there is this great cosmic battle, Jesus versus Satan. Well, why is it here? It points to his coming victory. 
Jesus successfully resists the devil and continues his march towards the cross. He continues his march towards the cross with his one objective in mind, which is to lay down his life for us. You see, the Bible is clear in its message that we turn our backs on God. We rejected God. We said, God, get lost. I don't want anything to do with you. I want to be the master of my own destiny. But God wasn't satisfied with us choosing to reject him and deserving death. He came for us. He sent his son for us. And here has God the Son come with one clear purpose, to lay down his life for us, to pay the price we deserve. And as he comes and as he resists the devil and as he walks along to Jerusalem, to Calvary, to to die in our place, his great seeming defeat on the cross is in fact the greatest defeat of all and that is of Satan, of the evil one. Now, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, that is, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but... God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You know, friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, this word has something to say to you. In Jesus' resisting of the devil, we'd see the sign of things to come, the defeat of Satan. Satan has been defeated. You are freed from bondage to sin. We all were once in bondage, unable to choose anything but to turn our backs on God, and yet God has loved us and set us free. That is so good. Now, if you're a Christian, your deepest desire is to please God. And that is freedom. That is freedom. Now, Paul Tripp puts it, Uh, so succinctly our problem though that we have despite this which is though the power of sin has been broken the presence of sin remains the power of sin has been broken but the presence of sin still remains there's still this sin that dwells in us you know as Christians we've been freed from the bondage to sin but we continue to sin don't we If you're sitting here this morning and you're not a Christian, as evidence of that, all you need to do is look at the person who brought you along. It doesn't take long to look at the lives of Christians to see that we sin. The power of sin has been broken. We're no longer forced to sin, but the presence of sin in our lives still remains. Which brings us to our second implication of our text this morning, which is that he has given us His righteousness. The temptation of Jesus shows us, points to the fact that he has given us his righteousness. It's true, isn't it? Just a moment of honest examination and what do we find? We find sin. You know, for many of us, we're all too aware of the areas in which we fail, aren't we? For many of us, there's 
shame-ridden, guilt-ridden, repeat failures, aren't there? Things like pornography, going onto sites on the internet or on your phone that you shouldn't be going onto, and, and not just doing it once, repeatedly doing it, time and time again, falling into sin and asking for forgiveness and falling into sin and asking for forgiveness. Things like gossip, talking about others in ways that's dishonoring to them and to the Lord and repeatedly doing it and sharing with someone some gossip and almost in the midst of doing it, like knowing that, oh man, I'm doing this already against something that I really don't want to be doing and and time and time again coming back to the same sins and repeatedly, repeatedly doing them, lying, being dishonest, exaggerating the truth. Time and time again. You know, for me, one, one thing I constantly struggle with is getting up for devotions, you know? You wake up, it's a cold morning, my, my wife is with me in bed, and I think, should I get up and do my devotions? No, I just need for a bit more. And again and again and again, repeat failures, constant struggle. But the truth is that sin actually goes further oftentimes than we even think. Here's another quote from Paul Tripp. He says, Evil doesn't always look evil. And sin often looks so good. This is part of what makes it so bad. In order for sin to do its evil work, it must present itself as something that is anything but evil. Life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. An impatient moment of yelling, Where's the costume of zeal for truth? Lust masquerades as a, as a love for beauty. Gossip lives in the costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. Fear of man gets dressed up as being a peacemaker or having a servant heart. Pride in always being right masquerades as a love for biblical wisdom. Isn't that true? We so easily justify our sins and dress them up to appear like they're good things instead of evil. Our problem is often worse than we think. And the result is we can begin to think that God just puts up with us. He's forgiven us. Oh yeah, he's forgiven us. But there's a long list of forgiven wrongs. Like a list of things we've done wrong on a chalkboard with lines through them constantly. And that somehow, because of our past, we kind of have this scarred, this marred record. And that as we repeatedly come back for grace, God gets increasingly tired. But our passage points to Jesus giving us something very special, something spectacular. And that is his righteousness, his obedient life. You see, I want you to notice a few things in our passage. Where is Jesus cast? He's cast into the wilderness. For how long is he sent there? For 40 days. Why? To be tempted. Or another way you could use that same word is to be tested. 
Where do we see this in Scripture? Where do we see this picture of what Jesus is doing for us? The answer is in Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. I want you to listen to this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. And Moses says this to the people of God. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the, in the wilderness. Why? That he might humble you, doing what? Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 40 years becomes 40 days for Jesus in the wilderness, being tested. Israel makes an absolute meal of it. They are rebellious. They are whinging. They are hard-hearted. Moses blames them six times for God being angry with him. And in one of my favorite passages, Deuteronomy 31, verse 27, Moses says to them, he says, look, I'm sick of you. If you're this bad while I'm here, how much worse are you whinging rebellious people going to be after I'm dead? He is completely exacerbated by this stubborn, rebellious people. And we see ourselves in this picture of Israel. We see ourselves prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. And Jesus comes and represents us in the wilderness. Except instead of rebelliousness, instead of wandering, we see perfection. Jesus perfectly resists Satan, following perfectly the will of his Father. According to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, in one of the great understatements, they say, and he hungered. He was very hungry. But more than hungry, he was thirsty. He was tired. He was in a barren wasteland and he was suffering. And Satan comes to him to tempt him. He tempts him. He says, Jesus If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus resists him, quoting the very next verse from the passage we just read, Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, man does not live by uh, bread alone, but by the word of God. Satan comes to him and takes him to the the peak of the temple and says, if you are the Son of Man, jump from this. And and Jesus resists him with Deuteronomy 6.16. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan takes him then to a high mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, if you will bow down and worship these, I will give you all glory and honor. And Jesus says, quoting again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord your God is one and you shall worship him alone away from me, Satan. He perfectly resists the devil. Satan comes to him and he says, Jesus, don't suffer and die. Don't go through agony. You you, you don't need to suffer. Glorify yourself now. Enjoy praise and honor help people to see who you are enjoy comfort not suffering and jesus says away from me he stands firm in the father's will and lives the life we fail to live he lives the life we fail to live and as a result scripture teaches we receive his perfect Obedience. 
Friends, I want you to understand this. This is an amazing truth. This is one of the spectacular truths of the Bible. We receive his righteousness, his perfect obedience. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, perfect obedience, perfect justice, and sanctification and redemption. Paul again writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Again, in one of my favorite passages, Romans 3, 21 to 22, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, where? Through faith in Jesus Christ. For who? For all who believe. We receive God's righteousness, Jesus Christ's perfect obedience through faith in Jesus, through faith in him, and it's for everyone. Friends, this has amazing implications for us. This is an amazing truth for us. When God looks at your life, what he sees is not a list of forgivens. When God looks at your life, he does not see the scars of a dodgy past, a marred record. What he sees is the obedience of Jesus. His righteousness. And it's all over you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a spectacular truth? Well, in summary, in Jesus' temptation, we see his obedience the righteousness which will become ours. Our third and final implication, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. You see, God the Son was truly tempted and the nature of the temptation was to turn his back on the Father and to avoid the cross. Friends, this morning, this is, this is deep, in the theological pool. This is deep, deep, deep water. This is a truth that we can't ever fully understand. God the Son, perfect in unity with his Father, through the Spirit, becomes a man. And God the Son, as a man, God himself, as man, is tempted in this moment to turn his back on his father. He could have, in that moment, turned his back on his father. That is unimaginable. That is absolutely incredible. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, tempted. And as a result of this, he can truly understand our weakness. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.14, one of the sweetest verses in 
all of Scripture. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Isn't that amazing? In every respect, tempted as we are. He has experienced temptation just like us. And so he understands. You know, um, our family... Um, has been walking uh, alongside someone with a serious mental illness. And there's a real temptation to distrust. It's a a difficult season for us. And... uh, And in many ways, it's very grieving. And there are times when it is very difficult to trust. And and to trust that God is working for for the good of our family and this person who is suffering, that his hand is present with us. And what a sweet truth This is for me in the midst of this to know that just like me, he perfectly understands. He too has been tempted to turn his back on his father. There is not a temptation you could feel that he hasn't experienced. That he didn't sin does not mean he looks down with us upon us with disappointment, but that he is able to offer us his sinless life, his righteousness. It's such a sweet truth. So... How should we respond to this? How should we respond? Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us the answer. In the very next verse, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Temptation isn't something that scares away the Lord. It's something that he's familiar with. The fact that he experienced temptation and stood firm means two things. It means, one, he understands, and two, he's able to help. So what's your struggle? Do you struggle and find yourself tempted with anger to just lose it with your spouse or with your kids? Do you find yourself struggling at times with, like me, selfishness, thinking of yourself, And no one else. 
Do you find yourself at times struggling with greed? Finding it hard to be generous and to give to the work of the gospel? Is it for you gossip and slander? Is it drunkenness? Is it lust? Well, there is a sweet truth that we see in Jesus' temptation and that is that you can come to him and find grace and find mercy. In Jesus' temptation, we see that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. You see, in Mark's account of Jesus' temptation, in closing, we read two simple verses that are dripping with grace. His temptation shows us that the devil has been defeated, that Christ's righteousness is ours, and that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus was tempted for us that we might have hope in the midst of failure. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your throne of grace this morning and we are so thankful for your grace. We are oftentimes aware of our weaknesses. We are oftentimes aware of our failings. And yet how good it is to know that we have your son, our perfect high priest, one who is familiar with our sufferings, one who is familiar with temptation and yet walked perfectly before you and is able to help us. Lord, I pray for anyone this morning feeling condemned. Lord, I just pray that they would find and experience your grace this morning. May we cling to him, our only hope. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.